Good morning, brothers and sisters. So, um, for those who may have uh, missed my previous sermon, uh, last Sunday, about a month ago in the evening service, I started a series into 1 Samuel. So, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles now. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Some background to what's been going on in Israel and what's been going on in Hannah's life and now the, the life of her son Samuel. Years before in the book of Genesis when God called Abram, Abram was 99 years old. His wife was likewise advanced in years. Many promises were given to Abraham, later called Abraham. And one of those promises, perhaps one that we don't often give much consideration, is that God promised Abram, kings shall come from you. That promise was repeated and, and then again later said to Jacob, Abraham's, Abraham, later his grandson, is Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and Jacob too is told that kings will come from him. A mysterious promise because, well, Abraham did not have any children. His wife was barren, and eventually he had Isaac, and his wife too was for a time barren, back for many years. And later Jacob did have many children, 12 children, and we read... Uh, we heard earlier the, the blessing of Jacob upon his 12, I said 12 children, it wasn't 12 children, it was 12 sons. Um, we heard the blessing of Jacob upon his 12 sons coming close to the end of his life. And Jacob says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah, one from Judah, would have dominion. One from Judah would be exalted over his brothers, and not just his brothers, but the nations. Later on, the prophet Balaam expands upon the promise uh, there given, the prophecy given by Jacob over his son Judah. And Balaam expands and shows how this king who will come, who will rise in Israel, will be one who brings rest for the people of Israel and who conquers their foes. Now, when we come to the promised land, when they come to the promised land in Joshua, they take the land according to God's promise, but they do not defeat and drive out all of their foes, all of the inhabitants there. And the wickedness that was there remains. And God's people are drawn into it. And they turn away from the Lord. They go after idols. They commit apostasy. They engage in all manner of immorality. And we see after the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, uh, a spiral downwards, so to speak. To give you a, an image, the book of Judges reads like the flushing of a toilet. It is a downward spiral into filth 
And with each cycle of a new judge rising up and delivering God's people, God's people turn away from him yet again. And the depravity gets worse and worse as you read through that book of Judges. And by the end of the book, we have in this repeated phrase, this repeated idea which comes again and again at the end of the book of Judges. Look with me at uh, Judges 17, verse 6. Just flip to the left a little bit. You'll see it in your Bibles. Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And just in case you didn't catch it, verse 1 of chapter 18 says the same thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And just in case you missed it there, verse, verse 1 of chapter 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel, and so on and so forth, and we hear of another story of, of evil and of idolatry. And just so the point is abundantly clear, the very last verse of the book of Judges puts it plainly again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is anarchy, lawlessness. Anarchy really just means without a head, without a leader, without authority, lawlessness. There was no king. They didn't submit to the Lord as king. They didn't submit to his law. They didn't have faithfulness towards his covenant. They departed after idols, and they engaged in all forms of debauchery and immorality. This was the state of the nation by the end of the book of Judges, and we see God's law rejected, his covenant abandoned, and his name profaned. So, that is a dark place for the people of Israel. And when we come into 1 Samuel, this is the condition. I want you to understand, this is the condition of that nation. A broken people. And a broken family, too. We read of how Hannah is in this broken family. Her husband has multiple wives. Hannah herself is uh, infertile and... This other wife mocks her for it. This is just misery. The, the nation itself was afflicted by the surrounding uh, peoples, the Philistines and others. So she's part of a broken people. She's part of a broken family. And she cries out to God for help. Cries out to God for deliverance from the dread of her circumstances and hope in the midst of misery. She asks God for a child and promises that if God grants her a child, she will consecrate him to the Lord. And God hears from heaven and allows her to give birth to a son. And this son is Samuel, after whom the book is named. So that's what we looked at in my previous uh, sermon, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We, we looked at that story of Hannah and her 
broken situation and how God heard her prayer and granted her a son. And not only granted her a son, but this son, after being weaned, after um, those first few years of his life, he was brought in to serve in the presence of the Lord with the priest Eli. And so with all that said, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2. But before we dive in, let me say this. You know, there, there may be lawlessness and divided families and a broken nation that, that we're a part of as well that needs hope, that needs transformation, that needs a radical shift in its allegiances, not to sin, but to the Lord. And we see many conflicting ideologies and broken families and, and evil around us. So what do we do with that? How do we, God's meager remnant, take courage? And what do we declare? And how do we have hope? Well, I think that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have a wonderful answer. In Hannah's story and Hannah's song, we have a wonderful answer why we can rejoice, what we should declare, and where we should put our hope. The Lord rescues, He repays, He reverses circumstances. We're going to look at that in greater detail from verse 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And we're going to look at that in three parts. But before we do, let's read the passage together and then we'll consider its application for our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off 
in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. And we're going to look at it in three sections. The first section, I think these sections come naturally from our passage. The first section is the first two verses. And in these first two verses, we see Hannah addressing God. It stands apart from the verses to follow. We see Hannah addressing God and rejoicing. And so here's here's the first point. Rejoice that the Lord delivers you. Rejoice that the Lord delivers you. The Lord rescues, repays, reverses circumstances for you. Even for you, brother, sister. See, Hannah was barren. She was in a miserable state. She was mocked, part of a broken family, part of a broken nation a nation in desperation. And she prayed to God. And God heard her prayer from heaven and granted her a child. And that is the context of this rejoicing. She had enemies, perhaps. The enemy she references here might even be Panina, who had mocked her. Or maybe she's talking more broadly thinking about some of the Philistines and others. But she rejoices, for God has heard her prayer. Panina can't mock her anymore for her barrenness. God's given her a child. She rejoices. Now she, says, derides her enemies because God has, God has delivered, God has rescued from that misery. You know, I think the Bible here uses the word salvation not with the the capital S, so to speak, but to speak of her particular circumstance, which is where this prayer initially flows out of. Now, we'll get to ultimate salvation as we work through this passage. But the truth is that the Lord often in our lives will rescue, will deliver, will act He'll answer our prayers. He'll bring us out of dreadful circumstances when we cry out to Him. Not always in this life, but she speaks very personally this testimony of what God has done in hearing her prayer. Later on, she speaks about um, how the, the barren has borne seven. Now, she's not speaking about herself anymore. She will go on to bear more children, but this isn't true as of yet. But she sees in her immediate situation an answer from God and a rescue for her circumstances. She cried out to God and he heard. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horn is a a picture of strength. Think of a ram. Think of a, 
a buck. Think of a moose eating some grass and then lifting up its head and you just have these giant antlers. That is a picture of strength. That is a picture perhaps as well of joy. Certainly when she says, my heart exalts in the Lord, God has lifted up her heart. She has been encouraged. She has been made glad. You see someone walking around with their face down, you know they're sad. God has told her to chin up. It's okay. I've heard you. He's heard from heaven. He has granted her joy instead of her misery. A gracious God. 1 Peter chapter 5, I think, helpfully unpacks what we see on display from Hannah in her circumstances. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. This is what it says. This is what I commend to you, brothers and sisters. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what Peter's saying is, Christians, you're suffering. Various kinds of suffering. It's only for a little while. Whether in this life or even to the day of our death. In the grand scheme of things, It's only for a little while. Cast your anxieties on God. Bring your suffering to God in prayer. Why? Because He cares about you. He cares for you. I think sometimes we can think of God so wrongly, like He's a cruel dictator. No, not at all. The Lord is not cruel towards His children. He's a loving Father. Just yesterday, I went to the park with my older two sons. My son did a face plant right in the, right in the ground. I look away for a second, and there he is, lying face first in the ground and crying. I pick him up. He's wood chips stuck to his face, a bloody lip, and... I brush off the wood chips, I get away the blood with my thumb, try to cheer him up, and put him on the swing, and he's happy again. You know, the Lord hears our cries as his children. When, when we do a face plant, he, he doesn't laugh at us, he cares for us. And we should call out to him because he cares for us. In humility, 
bring your request before God. In your suffering, take, take your anxiety, take your distress before the throne of grace and ask Him for help. Your suffering's only for a little while, and the Lord will lift up your head. The Lord will cause you to rejoice in due time, brothers and sisters. He cares for you, Christian. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you so you can lift up your horn, so to speak, that it might be exalted. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none like him. There's no rock like our God. So you should go to him for strength and for encouragement, as Hannah did. She testifies that to us. So we go on from Hannah's rejoicing. We should rejoice like Hannah rejoiced. And we should tell each other of what God has done in our lives. Maybe, before we move on, maybe what the Lord has done in delivering you from some sin that you have been entrapped in. How God has worked by His Spirit to bring you from that. Maybe it's by sharing your conversion story with another brother or sister. Maybe it's simply telling at prayer meeting how you were in distress and, and we prayed for your situation and, and God answered and God brought relief whether it's health or financial or whatever it might be, even those things God hears, God is kind, God can answer from heaven. Not, he doesn't always do it now and in this, in this life, but, but he did for Hannah with her infertility, and she testifies to it here. She rejoices, and so we should rejoice. And, and we should tell others when we have reason to rejoice. And those brothers and sisters who hear us, when you hear someone else speak of this, rejoice with them. Even if you might have reason to weep, rejoice with your brother and sister who has heard from, from the Lord this, or has received from the Lord this wondrous answer to prayer. So we rejoice that the Lord delivers us. He delivers you, even in a, in a personal way. You can speak of your testimony. You can speak of his rescuing in your life. He rescues, he repays, he reverses our circumstances. Does that for you. Now secondly, we declare that the Lord delivers. He rescues, repays, reverses circumstances. Yes, in part here and now. In part here and now. So, so Hannah goes on. She's, she's shown us this personal salvation that the Lord has done for her in verse 1 and 2. She's speaking of that. She's rejoicing about that. And then in the next verses from 3 through 8, she, she sees a general principle in what has happened. And she starts no longer speaking directly to God, but she starts speaking to those around her. She's declaring this truth to those around her. And what's the truth? Well, the Lord, the Lord delivered me. The Lord, can, the, the Lord can deliver you. And he does so here and now. 
He rescues, he repays, and reverses circumstances in part here and now. What is true for you is true for others also, in in general ways at least. The work that he's done in our lives shows the glories of his character. It may show a pattern of how he works, teaches us about what he does in the world, at least in part, here and now. So, in the next verses, we see seven sort of contrasting groups of people. Okay? Seven different groups of people. The proud and the humble, the mighty and the feeble, the full and the hungry, the fertile and the barren, the living and the dead, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the lowly. Okay? And so she speaks to those around her. She says this, Talk no more so so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So what we see here is these seven different contrasts and how in each case the Lord grants whatever the circumstances are. If you're rich, it's because the Lord has made you rich and he can make you poor and he can make the poor rich. And if you're lowly and weak, he can make you strong and he can take the strong and he can make them weak as well. Or if you're powerful, you've been put in a position of authority, the Lord can humble you and bring you down and he can take someone who's a slave and make them someone who is a ruler. He can even take the living and and kill them, and he can take the dead and he can raise them to life. That is our God. All of these things are in the hand of our God. Every single one of them. And what God often does is he reverses situations. It is in his power to do so. He has reversed Hannah's own situation. Hannah was barren. She cried out to God. God has taken her infertility and he has given her a child. And the woman who had many children that mocked her is now no no longer able to boast over her anymore. And so she sees a general theme in, in God's working is his modus operandi, so to speak, his, his way of operating. And that's not to say this is always how it happens. Of course it's not. 
But look in, uh, look in the Old Testament, Genesis. Again and again, he uses barren women to bring children into the world and to advance his kingdom. He takes Joseph, who was despised, one of the younger sons, who is sold into slavery, ends up in prison. What does God do? He raises him up and puts him at the right hand of Pharaoh as a ruler. And he uses that as part of his salvation plan to bring God's people into Egypt. Or then you look at Moses, this obscure baby boy who was doomed to die, put into a basket in the Nile. What happens? He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and gets raised in Pharaoh's household and eventually leads God's people out of Egypt. God loves to work in ways like these because he shows his glory on display when he takes people who are weak, who are feeble, who are poor, who are incapable by all human standards, who are lowly, who are unhealthy. He loves to work in ways like these because he puts on display his glory so that no one can say that man did it by his strength, that man did it by his his wealth, that woman did it by her vitality, by her wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes this point more plain. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So what does Hannah say? Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Her counsel to us is don't be proud. Don't trust in your health or your riches or your power or your livelihood or any of these things. Make the Lord your rock. Your dependence should be on Him. He can very easily strip away all these things. Look at, look at the book of Job. What did God do to Job? In an instant, it's all gone. Everything he had, his wealth, even his, his family, his health, everything basically was gone in a moment. That's not to say he wasn't, he wasn't saved. But God can take these things away just as quickly as he can give them. Paul says in In 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4, what do you have that you haven't received? Everything you have, you have been given by God. Now, that's not to say there isn't an element in which 
of course, there is the fruit of our labor, right? We, we understand that as Christians. But nonetheless, even our labor is given to us by God. Everything we have is given to us by God. And God can take it all away. I think of a, a sermon from Paul Washer, which expresses this so profoundly. This is what he says, what's going on here. He sees this principle as something he calls the Gideon's call. Gideon, one of the judges, a weakling of a judge, a scaredy cat. It seems that, this is what Paul Washer says, it seems that God will take the least expected thing and use it for a mighty thing. He says, my whole life has been based on that. God taking the runt of the litter. God taking that which is not, that which is despised, that which is unable, and using it and filling it with the power of God. Let's look at this for a moment. He says, every one of us who is Christian was found by God to be vile, and our best works were nothing more than filthy rags, but he saved us and cleaned us and uses us as instruments for his glory. Isn't that a wonderful quote? That's what's, that's what's going on here. That's what Hannah perceives to be generally true, and she wants us to know it. So perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, you know, I... I am affluent, I am strong and healthy. I am in a position of leadership. So what do we do then? We recognize it as a gift from God. What Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. There's nothing wrong with these things, nothing wrong with with having uh, children. There's nothing wrong with being alive or having wealth or, or having um, a position of authority. It's not inherently wrong. But when we start trusting in these things and seeing them as owed or earned or, or thinking of them as our, our refuge, that becomes eternally devastating. Idolatry. And the rich young ruler walks away from the Lord Jesus' call because he prefers his wealth. May that not be true of you. If you're sitting here today, you think of yourself as healthy and think of yourself as strong or wise or affluent. You think all things are going well for you. You need to make the Lord your rock because there, there will come a day when all that you have is, is stripped away and you are naked before the presence of God. You have nothing. You brought nothing into this world. You will leave this world with nothing. And after you die, you will stand before your maker. You need to make the Lord your rock. I beg of you, listen to what Hannah has said. Don't boast in yourself or what you have. Make the Lord your rock. There is no rock like our God. She says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. This is the one. 
that you need to trust in. This is the one that you need to humble yourself before or else in time you will be humble, not of your own volition. Bow down before your God. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. And brothers and sisters, may we warn others to run to Him as well. Make the Lord your rock of refuge. And and maybe you're in a situation where, where you're not saying, I'm not affluent. I'm in the dumps. I am in misery. I am in suffering. Well, you've got yourself into the brokenness of sin. You've got yourself into a mess. You feel very much the plight of this world and the suffering that comes with sin and evil that you've committed or that's been committed against you. You too need to go to the Savior and humble yourself. You too need to find salvation in God. And you know, the the great hope is that He can reverse circumstances. Even now, yes, as we'll see, He will do so ultimately at the consummation of all things. But for all of us, whether rich or poor, whether strong or weak, comparatively speaking, we need to make the Lord our rock and trust in Him. So we've seen how Hannah has spoken of her own circumstances, and we should rejoice that the Lord delivers us. He delivers you, even you personally, singularly. He delivers you. And we should declare that the Lord delivers in part here and now. He can turn circumstances on their head. He can bring retribution, repayment now against the wicked. And He does, in part. He can bring rescue from your circumstances of sin. He can bring rescue from misery and suffering in, now, uh, in part now here on earth. Yet, it's not the fullness of what we can hope for. The fullness is much better. And so lastly, in verse 9 through 11, here's the last point. Hope for the Lord to deliver us finally and fully through His anointed one. You see, the Lord rescues, repays, reverses circumstances ultimately through His Messiah. Hannah, in the last three verses, turns from speaking of herself only, as she did in verse 1 and 2, praying to God. She's given us the principle from verse 3 to 5 of how God works now, oftentimes in this world. And ultimately and fully and perfectly, verse 9 through 11, she she points us to the future. You see the verbs change. She's not speaking in present tense anymore. She's not saying the bows of the mighty are broken anymore. She's saying... He will 
guard the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's pointing us toward the future. The truth is there is no king in Israel. There is no anointed. She is reflecting back on the promises of God and hoping in the coming anointed king. You know, brothers and sisters, this is the first time in Scripture that this word anointed is used of the king. This is where we get the word Messiah. Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Or in Greek, we'd say Christos, which we transliterate to Christ. It's the same word. It means anointed. We translate it into English. It means anointed one. And this is the first time in Scripture where that word is used with reference to the coming king. And so she has seen what God has done in her life, and she knows how God operates, generally speaking. But she also knows... God's king is coming and he is going to make everything right fully, completely, finally. The enemies of God's people will be defeated and God's people will be delivered. Their feet will be guarded. The ends of the earth will be judged. And he's going to do that how? Through his king, the anointed king. That promise made to Jacob about the lion from the tribe of Judah. We see that promise reflected on more by Balaam, and he speaks of how the lion will bring rest for God's people and will be used of God to triumph over their enemies. Balaam speaks of a star that arises in Israel. That star, that king, that lion from Judah, we know as Christians to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, our Lord, is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the anointed king spoken of here. He is the one who brings judgment upon the earth for its wickedness. And he is the one who brings ultimate final salvation for God's people. Now there is a grave warning here for the wicked, for the boastful, for those who will not make the Lord their rock, for those who trust in their power and their riches and their life and their health and so forth, so on and so forth. There is this warning Verse 9, partway through, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. You think that you're strong? You will be cut off in darkness if you don't trust in the Lord as your rock. If in pride you make the Lord your adversary, it says that you'll be broken to pieces against you, if that is you, he will thunder from heaven. You see, darkness is a 
It is a depressing thing. Many of us long for the springtime because in the wintertime, it's just dark so often. Anyone that works a night shift, you know what it's like just to long for the sunrise to come. There's times where I've gone camping and and kids, I'll, I'll say that when I'm camping by myself in the woods, I'm still afraid of the dark. If I'm, if I'm by myself, there was one time I didn't bring a headlamp and I didn't find my campsite. I was hiking along and I, I couldn't find my campsite and the sun started to set and I had to pitch my, my tent right on the trail and it went dark and I was just lying there and I could hear the rustling in the bushes around me. I'm by myself. That, that's, a, that's a creepy feeling. Darkness is terrifying. It, it highlights our vulnerability. And that's not true just for children. That's true for all of us. We learn to kind of deal with it, generally speaking, but, but darkness is depressing. It is psychologically depressing. Light brings joy and growth and goodness and, and all sorts of things like that, doesn't it? Not so with darkness. And here what it says is the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Utter darkness, eternal darkness. This is a description of hell. A final judgment which the Lord will bring when He comes. And not only darkness, but this is darkness under the wrath of God. It says the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. He will thunder from heaven. Have you seen a tidal wave crash? Have you seen the sky split open with thunder and lightning? Have you heard that sound? That too can shake you, cause you to jump. It's unnerving. Even if you're not struck by lightning, it can give you some, some fright. Imagine the one who made the wind and the waves, who made the storms, the tornadoes, that Almighty God against you in hell forever. That is what's described here for those who do not make the Lord their refuge. And so the Scripture says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day when you find refuge in the Lord if you haven't already. Children, adults, people listening online, anyone who has not made the Lord their refuge. I plead with you, may this not be your fate. God God has been patient with you even now. You're hearing this. Run to the Lord and find refuge in Him. Humble yourself. Don't be proud in your sin, but confess it and find salvation for your soul through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was sent into this world to be our anointed king. And and though he was king, he was poor. He was born and laid in a manger to poor family. 
He was not of a noble status. He was a lowly carpenter's son. He was mocked and despised during his ministry. He was crucified, died the death of only deserving of a slave or the worst of criminals. And yet the Lord gave him strength. The Father raised him up from the dead. The one who kills and and brings to life again. You see, Hannah believed in the resurrection. Hannah believed that God could raise the dead. And she believed that the king was coming. And that even death would not stop the Lord from accomplishing his purposes. Why? Because God can raise the dead. And God did raise the Lord Jesus Christ, our king. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand from which he reigns now and from which he will come to judge the living and the dead and to bring this final salvation for all who trust in him. And so brothers and sisters, I say all that because that is where we must put our hope. Ultimately, we pray now for the Lord's help, for his deliverances, lowercase d, in our lives. But ultimately, we must hope and we must long for this final salvation. We're not going to find healing from all our infirmities here and now in this life. Eventually, we, we may find some healing temporarily, then eventually we'll die unless the Lord comes first. And it's only when He comes that we will receive new transformed resurrection bodies. We may not end up wealthy in this life. We may be poor our lives long. But there is eternal inheritance laid up for you that the Lord has waiting for you in heaven. Far greater than anything you could ever attain in this life. And it's graciously given as a gift. He says even that we'll reign with Him. You may your whole life long work under someone else's thumb, feel like you're at the bottom of the, the bottom of the pecking order, but in the end, if you trust in Him, you'll reign with Christ. What a promise that is. And so we need to put our hope and our confidence in Him and find joy and strength in Him. The Lord rescues, repays, reverses circumstances for you in part here and now, yet ultimately through His Messiah. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. And to close, I want to read for you one last passage from the um, Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. Let's turn there together. Mary, in similar theme to Hannah, rejoices the news of her son's birth. And she highlights the same themes, but she highlights these themes with consideration of not Samuel, but the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our hope. 
The Lord rescues or pays and reverses our circumstances in part here and now, yet ultimately through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Mary says in Luke chapter 1. Let's read from verse 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. O oh, great God, we thank You for Your many acts in history and in our lives. How You have changed our heart, brought us from death to life, from the death of our trespasses and sins to new life in Christ. And along the way, how You have preserved us and sustained us and at times even rescued us from tragedies and many circumstances that have caused us misery. And yet, Lord, we know that ultimately any suffering we face now is for a moment and it'll all, it'll all disappear when the Lord comes in glory and great power and raises us from the dead and lets us dwell with Him forevermore. And so, God, we thank You and we pray, God, that we would have humble hearts and that we would be eager also, to pray and to make these things known, and that we would be a people who are marked by joy and hope, knowing all that you have done for us and all that you will do in the future. And so, Lord, we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.